In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place, where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. At the Orvik Viking Center, we deal with Viking history, but there were other people here alongside the Vikings. These people were mainly the Angles and the Anglians who had their own rich culture. The Angles were a Germanic people who migrated to Britain after the Romans left. We don't know a great deal about the period of their arrival. This time used to be called the Dark Ages. The Angles and the Saxons organized into several kingdoms across England. The Northern Kingdom was called Northumbria. Northumbria was the most powerful of these kingdoms in the 7th century. Northumbria stretched from the Humber to lowland Scotland, and actually York was part of this kingdom. York wasn't the only place where royalty would have resided, though. There was actually a royal palace at Yevring in Northumberland. This palace would have been the center of royal power, patronage, art, and learning. At the Jorvik Viking Center, we have the pleasure of telling the story of the Vikings conquering and settling a diminished and weak Northumbria. But, at a new attraction in Northumberland, they tell the story of Northumbria at the height of its power. This new attraction is called Ad Geffren. At Ad Geffren, they've built a replica of the Northumbrian King's Great Hall. They've got a collection of Anglian finds from the Northeast. And they tell the story of how rich the culture of pre-Viking Northumbria was. They've also got a whiskey distillery. So today we are joined by Chris Ferguson from Adgafrin to tell us a bit more about their exciting new attraction. Excellent. Um, So just to get going, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners, please? Uh, yeah, I'm Chris Ferguson. So I'm the director of experience at Adgefren uh, Museum and Distillery in Woolley, Northumberland. Brilliant. And just to kind of get things going, I mean, can you explain what Adgefren is both in the past and now? Yeah, so um, Adgefren in the past um, was the 6th and 7th century um, summer palace, one of the many palaces of the kings and queens of Northumbria, um, and existed for about 152 years then. Um, and in the modern day, um, at Geffrin, uh, we have created a museum and visitor experience in Woolley that uh, showcases the finds from the archaeological excavations that took place at Ad Geffrin, um, the historical Ad Geffrin, Yevering, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, as well as more recent archaeological research over the last 20 years. Excellent. So what's been discovered at the Associated Archaeological Sites? So Yevering, uh, archaeological Yevering, for your listeners, some of them will be aware, some of them may perhaps not be, was um, a set piece of Anglo-Saxon and early medieval archaeology. So it was the first... Uh, Royal Palace, the first settlement site to be excavated at large scale by Brian Hope Taylor, um, who was a sort of pioneer at looking at these open area excavations of these timber archaeological sites. Um, Yevering was discovered in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and rediscovered through aerial photography 
Um, so Kenneth St. Joseph, who again was pioneer of this, just after World War II, was flying over the entirety of the British landscape um, um, and was undertaking some aerial photographic flights from the nearby airbase at Millfield over the northern Cheviots, mainly looking at that point for Roman military marching camps, frontier forts north of Hadrian's Wall. Um, and it was a dry summer and the crop marks from Yevering showed up. Uh, he showed these to Brian Hope Taylor, to others. It was published in a work on, um, pioneering work on um, monastic sites because they wondered if it was a monastic complex. And Brian Hope Taylor recognised it for potentially what it was. Um, we know from Bede, from the Ecclesiastical History of the English Peoples, that there was a royal court at Yevering. In Bede's day, he uh, records that it had been abandoned by the kings of Northumbria and replaced by a later site at Mailman at Millfield. The notes he had from a later site at Mailman that the kings had abandoned the, the site that they'd used um, in the years before at Yevering. And he was the first to associate this historical document that we had with an archeological site like that, undertook 10 years worth of excavation at the site, uh, published in the 1970s, and um, sort of set piece survey of the site, which really laid the groundwork for how we understand all of these royal palaces, all of these major Great Wall complexes that followed. So the recent work at Rendlesham, Sutton Courtney, all of those sorts of places as well. So it, it was really right at the core of the story of early medieval archaeology. And I think I'm right in thinking that you have a replica of the Great Hall at Yevering um, at your museum, don't you? We do. So that's the that's the the bit. So it's so a bit like your you know, the, the story of Yevering hadn't really been told yeah. in the same way because what you're dealing with is timber footings, timber buildings. Um, you know, it's not like the great ship burial at Sutton Hill. It's not highly furnished with lots of objects, but it is a place where those objects were used. So what we've done in the in the museum now is replicate the interior of King Edwin's Great Hall, Hall A4 from Hope Taylor's excavations, to bring it to life for the visitors, to to so that you can meet the types of people who would have inhabited the court. So when you go out to the archaeological site. You've got a flavor of the of the type of place it was. You can get sort of more of the emotive feelings of how it would have been um, and what you would have seen and encountered there. So we tell the story of everybody from King Edwin and Queen Ethelbert and Paulinus, who was, you know, this is the site of some of the first conversions like York itself, um, down to the slaves, the weavers, the thanes, all of the people that made a royal court, a royal palace in this period function. Um, and they come forward, they tell you your stories and then you can interact with replica objects, replica embroidery, shields, throat. You can sit on the throne and be the king or the queen as well if you want it to be. That sounds like loads of fun. So I'm I'm glad to hear that you got the replicas on display, but um, what notable artifacts have you got on display there as well? So object-wise, artifact-wise, we um, have the material. We have all the collections from the Brian Hope Taylor excavations on Lontos and the Geffen Trust. So we work closely with them, displayed those objects. So you can see bits of the buildings, the wattle and daub, the clinker nails, all those sorts of things that made the buildings work and were part of their fabric. 
Um, but we've also got the material that's been found around the site. So things like fragments of crucibles, things that we use for high status metalworking. And it's from that that we then show the wider stories, the wider context of early medieval Northumbria in the 6th and 7th centuries. So this is the period leading right up to the Golden Age and the creation of the Lindisfarne Gospels, foundation of the monasteries. Um, so we've got material on loan to us from the British Museum, from the Society of Antiquaries of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, the Duke of Northumberland, Lord Joyce in the Ford, Edel, Ford and Edel Estates, um, and more broadly from Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust and across the country. So it gives you a sense of the types of material that would have been used in the royal court, that would have furnished those rooms, those buildings, were being worn by these powerful individuals and people from across all levels of society. So you can you can see the types of objects that would have made that high level of Anglo-Saxon society work and how they would like to portray themselves. Um, particularly one of the stories we want to pick up on that is the role of women in this period and female power um, and how important women were in making society, the royal court and everything function around that. Great. So you use that term, the golden age. Um, why is this particular time period referred to as Northumbria's golden age? I mean, this is so this is the point. So so the, the background of Northumbria in this period where Yevering, and this is where it's a good jumping off point for that. Yevering and the nearby site at Bamber and the Royal Palace that would have been there um, are the two sort of main capital sites we have for the early kingdom of Benicia. Um, and the kingdoms of Benicia and Deira, which was focused around York and Cataract, merged to become the kingdom of Northumbria, really formalising around the reign of King Edwin, who's at the start of our story and the rebuilding of the palace at Yevering then. And this period, it takes you from the time of King Edwin through to King Oswald, through to King Oswy. And they, like between them all, they are constantly in rivalry with uh, the Kingdom of Mercia, the rise of Pende. You're right at the conversion period. So Pende is still a pagan. The, these kings of Northumbria are different types of Christians. Edwin, because of Paulinus, is more tied to the Roman continental way of, of worship and Christianity. Oswald, Oswy, um, because they'd been in exile in Iona during Edwin's reign, are more tied to a Western Isles, Western Irish tradition of Christianity, which leads you on in their period to the foundation of the monastery at Lindisfarne, the invitation of Aidan over from Iona, and all of those first bishops of Lindisfarne being of that Ionan Western Isles tradition. And that all merges in this period. So you've got a, a, a growing kingdom, Northumbria is flexing its power, it's growing bigger, Oswy finally defeats Pende, um, it establishes a supremacy over the other kingdoms in the Anglo-Saxon world, and also north over the Pictish world, and that brings together a big cultural melting pot. And Northumberland then go, Northumbria goes on to create a lot of artistic objects. So things like Lindisfarne Gospels, the Frank's Casket, all of the tradition of stone carving, stone sculpture. We have a replica of the Ruthwell Cross, which is a slightly later iteration of that tradition. And that's what's always defined traditionally by people as the Northumbrian Golden Age. It's this flowering of artistic and cultural product that influences all of Western Europe. And that comes from these people to a generation, two generations before laying the foundations 
for all of those monasteries and all of that work to be done and the rebuilding of the great palaces at Yevering, Bamber, York, Catterick and so on. I think it's um, really interesting that you kind of called it a cultural melting pot. That's something we refer to at Jorvik quite a lot, because before the Vikings got there, of course, the Anglo-Saxons were at Jorvik, you know, and the people we talk about were Anglo-Scandinavians. It, it was a, a melting pot of of all sorts of different kind of um, people and faiths and things like that. And um, you, you mentioned kind of the the local connection. Did you find, like, do you think that um, Adgefren and, and Yevering was a place of just central local regional power or did it have that more international connection too? I think it's more, I think it's a really good question. I personally think it's a much more international connection because the the figures at the top of the of society at these courts um, so in the time of King Edward, you know, his wife, uh, Ethelbert, has come from Kent. They've met, you know, they've been in Radwell's court in East Anglia, so they've seen the Southern Hill burial, but her her mother's Frankish. Uh, Paulinus has come over from, from Italy. Um, they're deeply connected, and we know from the excavations at Bamber in this the with the burials from the Bolhall Cemetery there from this period that we've got individuals in there from Scandinavia. We've got people from Ireland in there. So I think in these courts, you, you've still got people who've been to those places. They've got a knowledge of what's happening in the Western Isles, what's happening in Italy, what's happening in France, what's happening in Scandinavia. And those connections that you see later in Anglo-Scandinavian York are there 200 years, 300 years before. And that these people are, it's a, it's a continuity of connection. Um, and... Modern Yevering now, if you go up to the field where the site was, I think misleads you into thinking you're in an idyllic rural backwater of Northumberland with beautiful hills. The people there are deeply connected and it's a very densely settled landscape. Um, and they would have known and been well aware and traded goods knowing who they're trading with and who's traveling from those places and what that's like. It's interesting, um, you've mentioned uh, the monasteries, Lindisfarne, Paulinus, uh, Christianity, of course, really kind of connects people to that international web, doesn't it? People often ask us at Jorvik, why did they convert to Christianity? And I think that's definitely part of it, isn't it? You're part of the global community, aren't you, if you become Christian during this time period? Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think it's, uh, especially in the time period, it's kind of the way the... Um... It's kind of like the way the wind is blowing. It's like sort of like slow progression of, well, the Kentish kings convert and then the Stanglian kings convert. And it's part of the deal for Edwin to come back with an army funded by East Anglia to take the throne that he marries Ethelbert and they convert and they bring Paulinus up here. You know, this whole thing is a sort of... Um, it's part of a growing perception. It's the way you, it's, it's part of getting ahead. It's part of the way that the world works and that sort of back and forth. And I, and I think it's also remembering that in this period, conversion is a, it's a messy process. It's not, so it's not like sort of somebody goes, yes, that's it. You're baptized and you're Christian now. Um, people are navigating it, creating it, melding things, merging things. And that's why you get this sort of slightly different tradition emerging out of, Northumbrian Christianity, Christianity, Northumbrian monasticism than you do, say, in the Frankish world or in the Italian world. And why Northumbrian monks later are so important in converting the Germans. 
Mm, it's interesting as well to, to hear so much about this kind of golden age of uh, Northumbrian history, because it's fair to say at Yorvik, we, we're very focused on the tail end of an independent yeah. Northumbria, <laughs> um, when the golden age has passed by by this point, when, when the Vikings arrived in Northumbria in the 860s, I believe it's a state of civil war. Yeah. Um, Ayla is uh, at war with his rivals the Vikings are exploiting all this political chaos and we love to kind of brag that oh yeah the Vikings they really brought international trade international <laughs> culture the Vikings really made the north of England so important civilised yeah. <laughs> but there is this, this deep layer of history before it that's the Vikings kind of take a lot of the spotlights forward, yeah. but the Anglians have been here for centuries by this point. And I suppose it's it's the work of all these historical figures that you've mentioned that they have made Northumbria such an attractive location, I guess, for the Vikings to come and take over yeah. a couple of hundred years later. Yeah. I, I, I think that's it. I think it's a it's a the reason you've got the, the instability there is because it's a economically has been a very powerful area you know it's very well organized there's a lot of people here there's a lot of wealth to be made out of it they're exporting a lot of goods in those sort of hundreds of years before the viking rival so you've got that that instability comes from people fighting over the wealth um and and so it's not it's it's not coming into a a barren landscape i think it's remembering that this is this is densely settled densely peopled very wealthy and very I, I, and this is one of the things I think is what, what helps the Viking arrivals, the Scandinavian arrivals into this, is it's a, a deeply uh, connected by communities across the area by, by water. Everybody can easily move around. All of the sites, all of the Anglian sites are connected on the river networks right the way up into Northumberland modern Northumberland and the Scottish borders. And so that that gives you this just different, very easy, very different world for the Scandinavian and Viking arrivals into. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's interesting how it just kind of all merges together. And and like Lucas said, we, you know, the Vikings were able to kind of capitalize on the existing network. Um, before our, we kind of wrap up our, our interview, I have to ask, um, I've, I've definitely kind of got from the website that whiskey is at a very kind of core of what you guys do there. What's the connection with Ad Geffren and whiskey? Uh, so, well, so the main thing is for us, it's to create, we are celebrating Northumbria. So we wanted to create the museum to tell the story of Ad Geffren. You know, that's at the primacy of what we're doing. But as everybody knows, running museums, running cultural things is always a complicated financial world to be in nowadays. Um, and Northumberland, Northumbria, is home to some of the finest barley growing areas in the region. That's partly why the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings were here. You know, this is fertile land. It's great for growing your barley. Um, so that, you know, historically what we've done in Northumberland is grow some amazing barley and then export it for other people to make the whiskey with. What we thought we'd do is create a single malt distillery that makes whiskey from the the barley fields that are you can see from here are within 15, 20 miles of us. Um, bring it back here and and create a single malt that captures all of that sort of Anglo-Saxon Northumbrian story with it too. So every time you buy a, 
a bottle of whiskey somewhere else in the world in the future, you're getting a little bit of the 7th century of Northumbria on that bottle, in that bottle, telling you its story. Um, and in future, we're, we're exploring how we use heritage grains, how we look at the types of barley that they grew in the 7th century, and potentially using that in our whiskey making. That's amazing. If our listeners want to come and visit you and maybe have a little taste of this whiskey, how, how do they go about doing that? How do they keep in touch with you to find out more? Uh, so we are on all your favorite social media channels. Um, just look for us as Ad Geffren, or you can visit our website, which is adgeffren.co.uk. Um, you can book tickets, you can come and see us just for the museum, or you can come and do distillery tours with your museum ticket included um, and um, and follow us online. We're, we're sort of everywhere you want to look for us. If you liked this episode and want to learn more about the Vikings, then come visit Jorvik Viking Centre, where you can enjoy the sights, sounds and smells of the Viking Age. You can book your tickets at jorvikvikingcentre.co.uk. Don't forget to rate and review that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favourite history podcast. To contact us for more information or ideas for future episodes, you can email us on podcast at yorkat.co.uk. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology, hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, produced by Miranda Schmiederer, Lucas Norton, and Gareth Henry. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.